This is the controversial thing about doing shadow integration practices is that if our conscious mind is interested in healing, we might be missing the medicine or the learning inside of the not healing. And so bypassing the not healing or the unhealed or the broken with our being trained or focused on a healed state in the future means that I haven't done the work. That's the issue. It's not that we're not going to heal. What I always say is healing happens when it's happening. I mean, you don't have to worry about that part. The universe is the secretary of reality and takes all the notes and does all the future and has all the information about what's supposed to happen next. You don't have to do that. You can focus on what's happening here now, which is very cool. I like to call it the way of the wound. It feels like there's a cultural shift where people are starting to get it that focusing on healing is a bypass. It's a bypass to just being, what if I can't heal? What if I'm in a wheelchair? What if I'm blind? What if I don't have the ability to fix this? I can get focused on uh, trying to find a shaman to heal my blindness, but it's maybe a little bit unlikely that you're going to heal your blindness. So you might as well do something else with that. Decode blindness. No society can understand itself without looking at its shadow side. Dr. Gabor Mate writes in his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It takes an amazing amount of courage to do the kind of inner work that I discuss on the podcast with my guest today. The term shadow work has been becoming more and more mainstream as we as a society go through our healing journeys, reckon with trauma and take responsibility for our unconscious behavior. But what is shadow work really? And why does it matter that we do it? According to the ACE, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which is one of the largest investigations of childhood abuse and neglect and household challenges in later life health and well-being, the experiences we face as children have real tangible physical impacts on our health and well-being as adults. In his book, The Body Keeps a Score, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk shares that child abuse and neglect is the single most preventable cause of mental illness the single most common cause of drug and alcohol abuse, and a significant contributor to leading causes of death such as diabetes, heart disease, cancer, stroke, and suicide. I believe that the cause of child abuse is unhealed trauma, mental illness, and our shadows leading our behavior. By facing our shadows, we create a new legacy. My guest today is Melissa Meter, founder of Synchrosoma, and she teaches a unique approach to working with our unconscious and shadowy material. Combining over 30 years in the yoga tradition, Jungian psychology, and intuitive archetypal-based somatic practices, she's been helping others learn the art of shadow stalking. She shares powerful modalities for self-revelation through deep understanding of how the archetypes and shadows work in our lives. When we do this, we have the ability to mature our soul and co-create our mission on earth. Melissa is also my cousin and helped raise me and is one of the most important people in my life. And I'm really overjoyed to get to sit down with her and share her amazing work with you all. We are relentlessly attacked from the outside by that which we are unwilling to accept or notice about ourselves. And the key to becoming more masterful at the art of living and loving is to turn our gaze inward and to retrieve our maligned or traumatized soul fragments, those parts of ourselves that we have lost sight of. Rumi has written that suffering is a gift and in it is hidden mercy. 
And Carl Jung wrote, real liberation comes not from glossing over or repressing painful states of feeling, but only from experiencing them to the fullest. And this is all confirmed by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk again in his book. Neuroscience research shows that the only way we can change the way we feel is by becoming aware of our inner experiences and by learning to befriend what is going on inside us. In this episode, Melissa shows us how to do this practically and turns my world upside down in the best way. She shares powerful tools, universal truths, and hilarious stories that will help you to unlock your own body's wisdom and deepen your shadow work practice through embodiment exercises. My name is Kaylee Marks. This is Amplify What You Love. And here's my conversation with Melissa Meter of Synchrosoma. I'm so excited <laughs> to get to talk to you. I know, me too. Yeah. I'm excited every time I'm just around you. <laughs> That's totally how I feel. You know, yeah. what's interesting is you have been making documentaries and interviewing people longer than I've been alive, probably. And, and my upbringing was like seeing you do that and seeing recordings of you. and. Dad oh, that's interesting. It. Yeah. I mean, your culture shapes you in a way, right? I think that's true with my upbringing. And, you know, it's funny because you almost try to do something different and then you find yourself kind of doing the things that the people that you <laughs> grew up with do. I think that's totally true. I thought I was so unique. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out we're just a product of our culture. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that's part of the karma thing, right? You come, you incarnate into a place that's going to be conducive to actually who you are. Maybe it's more like that rather than just being shaped by your family you are going to that family because you have some, because they have the thing that is required for you to do your thing. Right, they're the perfect, uh, like, almost like I'm seeing like a puzzle board with a puzzle piece missing. Yeah. It's both, you complete the puzzle, but the puzzle is what makes you exist at, yes. in the first place. Yes, Oh, that's such a good way to put it. So one of the things that you are masterful at is decoding reality. And I was thinking that this conversation, I'm always thinking about the audience listening. I'm always thinking about my people what who are listening. What they want to hear. What they want to hear, what they need to hear, and what would serve them the most. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, I think life is extremely confusing and chaotic, especially over the last few years. And so this idea of being able to decode reality is super valuable. And so you're the founder of Synchrosoma. You teach the archetypal somatics practice and, and system and pedagogy in your organization. And you are an advanced yoga practitioner. You're one of the most incredible artists I know. You're a self-sustained, um, like house <laughs> on the prairie level. What would you call, what would you, what do you call like? The homestead. The homest you're a homesteader. I mean, I'm kind of a really lazy homesteader, but the, but I do a lot. You know, you don't even notice all the things you do when you're on a homestead kind of vibe, a piece of land. You're homesteady. I'm homesteady, and um, I think I did a lot more and wanted to do a lot more of that when I was younger. Like, I, we moved up here specifically to do that. Um, and then, you know, the older you get, the more you're kind of like, that's enough. <laughs> so we still do it all, but it probably is a lot less than people in their youth are kind of like getting out here and doing the farming and all that stuff. But yeah, so so your point is that I'm... 
what's my reality or what is my, what, what's happening in this reality and, and why are we decoding it and why is decoding it good? Yeah, and you also have a framework of the overworld, underworld, and the world in between. Yeah. Which might be helpful to take the listeners through. I've yeah. had you on the podcast before, right yes. in the beginning. I, I forget which episode number you're like four or something. Uh-huh. And so everyone can go back and listen to that, but we have a much longer time right yeah. now. And we're in person. That was yes. virtual. So yes. this is, you're one of the people who, if I was king or the world was ending, <laughs> you would be on my main advisory board, 100%. And so I think we have a lot of time to be able to go into some stuff. So where, where do you think would be good to start? Do you want to talk about that overlay? Do you want to talk about uh, archetypal decoding. somatics? I kind of like the idea of talking a little bit about decoding because you brought that first. And Why do we need to decode reality and what yeah. does that even mean? I think that's why I like it because a lot, a lot of what I see in my practice and working with clients and part of the problem is being enmeshed in the waking dream, what I call the waking dream or this I'm not the only person that calls it that. It's many people call it that. This is a waking dream. This is like a dreamscape. And a lot of us are lost in it and we're just doing our life in reality without contemplation or without being able to have the overview or step back what we call in the yoga lingo witness consciousness. And so that's what I teach. I teach us to step back. And so, okay, once I've stepped back and I'm in witness consciousness, then what? Could we go into that more yeah. just so that everyone feels clear? So <clears throat> what does stepping back look like? What mm -hmm. is a practical example? What is witness consciousness? Yeah, this is a big part of what I train people to do and what is in all my courses and like the one shadow stalking 101. I think there's a, there's a meditation in there called the witness meditation. Essentially what we're doing you can imagine here's your body and this is my personal self. And then if I'm stepping back, it's almost like I'm stepping to the behind my body space in, in the yoga world or in the sutras or wherever they talk about this in the Vedic tradition, it's sometimes called the face behind the face. So it's this idea that this is sort of a mask, the persona, you know, the self that I think I am. And there's many, many ways, this is the purpose of yoga, to get behind that and um, be the person or the thing that is holding it. So anything we do, for a good example, and that I probably talk about on my podcast nonstop, is to name or talk about what I'm experiencing from a narrator's position. So it would be sort of like, Melissa's really upset right now. And just doing that thing gives me the one step behind where I am now talking about myself as if I'm a bigger identity. I'm the writer of my waking dream. So that's kind of a good maybe baseline. And then, of course, I've got, I think I even have an episode called Witness Consciousness. So there's, there's you know, the way I've structured my podcast is so that lots of the concepts are just being talked about in these little chunks, these 15 minute chunks where you go and you just learn about it. So yeah, it reminds me there in the book Spectrum of Consciousness by Ken Wilber, it was the first time I had like a, a physical realization that there's like who's thinking kind yes. of thing. And, and like you're saying, stepping back through and even the, the mindfulness meditation practice of not attaching to your thoughts gives you one layer at least, but you're talking about something that goes even beyond that. So then you were saying before, you know, before witness consciousness, it's one of the main things that is like a pre, uh, prerequisite for 
decoding what's going That's on. That's the first layer. So the first layer is to be able to understand who you are, who you really are, because we're not this. We're um, connecting with it. That's the purpose of life. We incarnated. We're here to be in connection with this waking dream. We're in the dream. We're doing a dream. And we're not supposed to abandon it or rise above it and, you know, sit on a mountaintop uh, just meditating all day. We're supposed to be engaged in this messy experience so that we can get a lot of fodder, like the symbols of our waking dreams. So, so once we've gotten that uh, understanding that, okay, I'm not just Melissa, then I have an ability to okay, so I can start narrating this thing. The cool thing about this, and this comes into that course, Shadow Stalking 101 with the overworld, the underworld, and the in-between space, is that then I get actual um, ability to transform what's happening here. So I'm not just here to, you know, heal or, you know, be happy or, you know, make my trauma healed or something like that. that not that I'm trying to make fun of that, but <laughs> there's a lot more possible. So a couple of things there. So there's this idea of if you name it, you can tame it. Mm -hmm. In cognitive behavioral yes. psychology and therapy, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. just that by by containing the experience, we're not contained by it, which yes. you talk a lot about. Mm -hmm. And then the the healing. I want to I want you to go deeper into healing because it's sort of a word that everyone throws around. Like we want to heal. We want to heal. We want to heal. It's sort of like the the guide the guidepost or the guide light or the lighthouse that we're all trying to go towards. We want to heal. We want to heal, which is shadow, shadowy. So why is that shadowy? Cause that might go against what a lot of people think would be shadow. We'd be like, what? No, healing is a good thing. This is the controversial thing about doing shadow integration practices is that if we're, if our conscious mind is interested in healing, we might be missing the medicine or the the learning inside of the not healing. And so bypassing the not healing or the unhealed or the broken or whatever it is um, with a, our being trained or focused on a healed state in the future is means that I haven't done the work. And that's the, that's the issue. It's not that we're not going to heal. What, what I always say is healing happens when it's happening. I mean, you don't have to worry about that part. The universe is like the secretary of reality and takes all the notes and does all the future and has all the information about what's supposed to happen next. You don't have to do that. You can focus on what's happening here now, which is very cool. And I like to call it the way of the wound. I'm not the only person that calls it that. There's, there's, It feels like there's a cultural shift where people are starting to get it that focusing on healing is a bypass. It's a bypass to just being, what if I can't heal? What if I'm in a wheelchair? What if I'm, you know, blind? What if I don't have the ability to fix this? I can get focused on uh, trying to find a shaman to heal my blindness, but it's pretty, it's, it's you know, I'm not going to say you can't do it. You could but it's maybe a little bit unlikely that you're gonna heal your blindness. So you might as well do something else with that. Decode blindness. Decode blindness. Yeah, so it's making me think a little bit too about how we're always sort of deteriorating. Like living is dying <laughs> yes. and dying is living. And also, yes. so as you know, I had this incident with pirate's booty, the cheese yes. snack, where I <laughs> lacerated my tongue really bad. 
and it's it's been going on for like a week now. It's been really hard to heal, and it's I've I've been in the wound, and I've yes. been really wanting it to heal, and I've been wanting to get through it. But what I just realized as you were saying that is it's made me really conscious of everything I'm eating, and maybe even saying. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I may well so far not yet. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> until you said that, but it, it's definitely there's. Uh, value in the suffering of the tongue wound. What is the what is the symbol of the tongue? Uh, speech. Speech and Taste. connection, communication. Yeah, it's one of the senses. Right. Yes. It's like one of my senses is wounded, but it it is giving me more awareness around just everything. Like whereas before I would, and in fact, probably what caused the wound was unconsciously just stuffing half a bag of pirate right. booty down my throat. <laughs> This is not a paid partnership with Pirate Booty. No, and nor is this a smear <laughs> campaign. But so okay, so so there's symbols happening all around us all the time, and we have we have opportunities to decode those symbols and to get gold from them. Yeah, I want to say just a little bit about the compost cycle because you talked about how we're decaying, and yeah. I just I want to throw this in there. This is a big. Uh, also shift in consciousness for people to come out of the linear attitude towards their life, where um, I'm trying really hard to not die. You know, I'm trying really hard to stay healthy. I'm trying really hard to do all these things and, and, and stay young or something where if we get into this decaying idea, which is very, um, cross-cultural truth, this is universal truth that there's cycles to life. We, we, and, and the decaying cycle isn't a bad cycle. It's not a bad part of the cycle. In fact, if we look into nature, the compost is what feeds the new growth. So we actually have to go through these cycles. They're daily, they're like lifetime, and then they're many lifetime, um, and then they're collective cycles that are like that. So I just wanted to point to that decaying thing because we are always decaying, we're always breaking, we're always having things happen, and they're important. They're not something to avoid, which is very common in the healthy world, the world of health is to avoid the decay. I'm not saying to just go stuff yourself with any kind of booty or, <laughs> or sugar or something that just causes early decay, but, but to get um, aligned with that part of the cycle, I think is really important. So I wanted to say that. Yeah, the, there's a book by Thich Nhat Hanh. I think it's called True Love that he talks about this, but he talks about the compost is mm. in the flowers and the flowers are in the compost. Yes. And I think there's so much gold there. You were answering why the fixation towards health yeah. can avoid the decoding of the wound or of the compost process. I think that's super valuable, especially in a time of the, pandemic when everyone is so concerned about health. That, in fact, that was one thing that I I talked about with my clients is like, what what's the pandu pandemic doing for you, or what? Why did you create the pandemic in your waking dream? And it was amazing to to use that in the beginning when it was really dicey and intense for people to shift their consciousness to a, from a fear or like this is happening to a, oh, okay, if I created this or this is part of my reality, what is in here for me? And I would say across the board, maybe 90% of people just felt like having a break from reality was a big part of it. Yeah, I think that makes so much sense. A lot of people actually had a somewhat lucrative 
kind of beneficial experience. Not everyone, a lot of people lost people. There's some horrible moments. There's a lot of people that are still suffering the economic impacts from it. But there's a lot of people that didn't have to go back to the office job that they hated. They got, uh, or it encouraged them to get a new job that they liked or, or so many different things happened. So I think different people decoded different things out of it. Yeah. I'm curious, why is it so hard for me to fully own that I created a pandemic or I created a salt wound in my mouth or like why why is the ownership of of why am I calling in these symbols or this waking dream why is that so painful well let's do the pandemic one because I think that that's kind of an important one one of the issues with the human human nature is to can see themselves as very small and not impactful or concerned with how am I going to do anything in this when there's so much competition for anything in there? So, so the idea that I created a pandemic in my waking dream, or I, or I have that much impact in any way, it doesn't matter if it's true. This is, this is an important part of, of decoding. We're not looking for some sort of like, I'm God and I created a pandemic. It's more like if I, if I whittle this thing down to how this is affecting me and what the symbol is doing for me, then I get the benefit out of it. I always say that it doesn't matter if it's your shadow or my shadow or somebody else's shadow. It's like, I can own it. Like you were just saying, I can own this for me and get somewhere. But I think the big thing is that realizing how big you are, not how small you are. So with the pandemic size, um, I think it's really helpful to kind of get like, I had some sort of, uh, my karma or my soul has some impact on this thing that's happening right now. With the tongue, with the small thing, why is it hard to own that? Um, Maybe maybe that has to do with just uh, not wanting to avoid the guilt of that. Like I did something wrong and... I mean, I, I, you don't even need to know if you're wrong or right in something. You can let go of those kinds of judgments and just be like, it happened. Yeah, I suppose it probably <laughs> is less on the small things like that and more on the bigger scale of things that are harder. Like when really hard, bad things do happen, yes. it's harder to own that as something oh, that I call it. Okay, that's really a good point because there, there is this old sort of 80s new age idea that you create your reality which has a lot of guilt in it. Like you created your cancer or something. And or even that, karma is sort of, a lot of people get annoyed misunderstand by karma it. because of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, that, that it's just unhelpful to have that attitude. The way I put it is it's not about guilt. It's about ability to respond like your responsibility. That's why if you see shadow in the room, I would personally grab it because that's where the gold is. So What's shadow? Shadow is anything that's been out of my ability to contain it. So if I'm around a person that I don't like, and I've said they're bad, then that's part of my shadow over there. And anybody can say, well, you can't own everybody's bad, whatever. It's not that it's, yes, somebody can be acting like a total jerk, and that's them. But your response to that is your shadow. It's how you're oriented towards reality. So Everybody has responsibility, but if I'm oriented towards rejection rather than containment, then that means I'm projecting shadow out. If I'm oriented towards containment, then I can see something bad that's happening in the world and be like, I'm actually big and I have an ability to respond to this. And that's right action. So, the, And that's where the model, a little bit of the victim and the perpetrator mm-hmm. 
and um, the rescuer and then the the witness yes uh, is maybe helpful because I think that's part of what it takes to be able to see shadow and in ourself and others and own it and and contain it so could you break that those roles down a little bit we go into this way more in coaching one-on-one it's hard to put these things into little packages but um and in courses i talk a lot this is like probably some of the main stuff that we get to because let's put it this way being involved in the personal self-dramas whether I'm a victim or a perpetrator or any kind of role I'm taking in a, in a personal layer drama, if I'm identified with that, I just don't have a lot of flexibility. I can't contain other. If I have a witness or a bigger position, a more container, you can use any language you want. You know, it, my language isn't necessarily the best language for this, but whatever it takes for you to be the container or be owning it or be showing up for it, that gives us the power. I mean, really it comes down to power. So if I'm if I'm stuck in a small self identity, something is happening to me that I don't want to be happening, I'm I don't I'm not empowered. Maybe I think I don't have enough money, for example. And this is I know a touchy subject because you've got evidence, you've got your bank account, you've got your debt, you can show me how you don't have the money to do something. And that can be a real victim place. Like I and and it's even triggery that word. I'm sure people listening to this are going to be like I'm not a victim. It's happening to me. This is the government doing this to me or this is my situation or my lot in life. I didn't do this to myself. So why anyway? We, we do want to step out of those identities so that we do have empowerment. In fact, there's a lot you can do without money. So just having that awareness, there's a lot of things you can do that seem to require money that you don't actually need to have the money to do. And there's a, a great person that you could talk about who is the master of... Oh, who I talk about nonstop with everybody who I bring up all the time. Maybe you'll be hearing this. Woody, is that who you're talking about? Woody Harrelson is just, he's a guy who happens to, as far as I know and have heard in some interviews with him, he, he seems to get around the world and do things um, on other people's dime a lot. And not and not in, nobody has a problem with it. It's just because he's a little bit of a chi flow master. And he seems to be... Um, like in the world, but not of the world in a way. I could be wrong. You might know Woody and say, no, he's, you know, got issues, but at least my Woody Harrelson, that means the one that I'm symbolically decoding is kind of a little bit of a, a flow master. And so you don't have like to, to have a huge amount of money to do a lot in the world. You don't have to, you're, you're able to to surf the the energy of the world in a different way because and 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 your Woody let's call yeah him, my Woody your Woody he's able to like you said go around the world on other people's and uh, other people's money or other people's you know time like that maybe they're flying somewhere they have a yacht or whatever he he ends up able to hitchhike off of other people not in a in a in a detracting way but in just sort of a Kung Fu way almost. I mean, if I was going to carry it forward, as, I, as you were talking, I was like imagining Woody walking down the street without shoes on and just like seeing a dog and walking it because he saw the dog and he wanted to walk it. Just sort of like, you know, like being in the world and kind of flowing in a dreamlike way through things. And 
even his story about getting work, he was on the edge, like I think kind of penniless and showed up in LA or something. And suddenly like the work started working out for like at the last minute, you know, this is the thing that the full card is representing of the tarot deck that the fool is on the edge of the cliff playing the flute, dancing with a dog and probably doesn't have shoes on and doesn't know he's right on the edge of the cliff and could fall off and doesn't care because even if he fell off, there'd be a, a big crow just flew by. Even if he fell off, he would land on a giant crow and just soar off into the woods. <laughs> so the, the fool energy is kind of like what we're going for. We want to be foolish. We want to be dumber. We want to be um, more body intelligent, less brain centric, less mind. Um, and he just kind of represents that for me. Like, so anybody who's listening to this, go watch some interviews like David Letterman or something where Woody's talking about what he does and how he acts and you'll get it. So the, it, get, it brings up this thing about trust and the idea. So to decode anything means there's meaning in it, right? Yeah. So it's, it's to take some sort of scrambled mess, chaotic mess, and pull out nuggets of meaning that are valuable and useful and applicable. And the image of the fool walking off the cliff or of Woody Harrelson walking off the cliff onto the raven, it's like there has to be this tremendous trust that what is happening is in my highest good and interest. That's huge. That that goes back to the money thing and all kinds of stuff. Any any issue that you're having, if you can just take the witness position for a moment and just do this while you're listening to this, just think about a think about a um, something that's a problem and notice your attachment to it, like it's bad or it's good. You know, it's okay. Or or if you're bypassing that it's bad and just being like it should be okay, so I'm going to say it's okay. And then just take a witness and go, okay, there's been a lot of bad to this. Like I've been feeling like this thing is my tongue thing. I've been feeling, feeling like this is bad. And then notice that I haven't trusted maybe that whatever this thing is that's happening in my reality is part of my medicine to grow my soul, to evolve. And then take the symbol, whatever it is, the problem, and then just talk about it to yourself, write it down, pause this episode and write down for yourself what it actually is, what the constituents of this thing, tongue, pain, you know, the different aspects of it. And like we did earlier, Kaylee brought in um, speech, communication. You might have some, you know, real symbols there to start chomping on. So the meaning, the interesting thing about meaning is we don't want to be stuck in or concrete or finished in a, in a meaning. So even a tongue, we want that to go for on for a long time language. You know, we want to keep working with that symbol and having it keep delivering more medicine. Every story ever written. We don't want, yeah, we don't, exactly every story ever written, my story, what I have to say, we want it to keep we want it to be the giving tree. We want it to be the the uh, the ocean that keeps delivering the 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 gold and the shells. Wow, this is like a orientation of life. It is totally a switching from the conditioned reality that we've been grown up to believe 
to a collaboration with the universe that's very empowered. What's something that's happened recently that's just kind of seems pertinent uh, along this line that you could share of, of like using, using some of, of this um, technology, I'll call it? Well, I'm careful with speaking out loud, like casting a spell out loud about something I want because it does kind of happen quickly. Like th you get what you want. And maybe, <laughs> maybe a good one is um, getting you here. Oh, yeah. So uh, to give a little background context, I live in Austin, mm -hmm. Texas, mm -hmm. and I'm currently in California visiting you on your amazing mm -hmm. um, homestead up here in the mountains. And yeah, so just- How did just I do that? Place. How did I manage to, uh, I, I probably cast a few spells, like um, come here. <laughs> <laughs> come hither. Come hither. I don't know exactly what you did. You kept, you kept inviting me. Mm-hmm. I just wanted it. You wanted it. I invited it. you. Oh, and you, oh came. you prepared the cabin. Oh, that's right. I gave you updates on how things were going in there. You and got I, internet out did there. Did I send you a picture? All sorts of stuff. I created the reality I wanted, which was getting you here. <laughs> well, and you you made the place like ready. You put a mattress in there all before I came. Oh, okay. That's a really good point. That was hard work. And Getting the reality you want isn't about manifesting with your mantras or your um, affirmations. There's actual work that goes into getting what you want. So once we once we start to kind of get an idea about something, yeah, we want to put in the, are you sure you want that? Okay, well, if you want that, then let's take the steps to make it happen. Right. I did. I, I created the reality that you could slot into. How do you decide what is safe to cast a spell for like having me come here or how do you kind of like what's your discernment process there? Well, that's a really good um thing to kind of decode a little bit because I wouldn't even have said that what I was doing was casting spells, but when you look at everything you do and say back to the tongue and com communication and naming Everything you do is basically a spell. That Me saying that was a spell. I just cast a spell that everything you do is a spell. So you can override that and say to yourself, well, no, that's not true because I, I say and do things that aren't spells. And I would recommend that. <laughs> Actually decoding and considering what people say and not just taking what they say as the way it is. So... I'm careful, I guess your question is, how do I decide what spells to cast? I'm careful to notice if I'm casting a spell. For example, I'm sick is a spell. I'm sick. So if you're sick and you're casting the spell, I'm sick, it's kind of perpetuating the sickness. So a lame, I would say, recasting the spell is I'm not sick because that's sort of like going into shit. Like I am, I'm feeling bad, so. Denying. I'm denying being sick. So the a, a new spell would be a, a spell that if you're gonna cast, I say if you're gonna cast a spell, make it a good one. So I'm getting better, I'm getting better. You know, I'm, 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 I'm sick in order to decode whatever it is that's in here. I mean, this is happening for a reason. Maybe that's the best spell of all. So. I, what I, what I want to do as a, as a person who is casting spells when I don't notice is start noticing that I'm casting a spell. And the greatest thing to do is just to bring it into the present, bring it out of the future. I'm going to be sick all week, you know, 
take it out of the future. I've been sick. You know, you just put it in the past. Take it out of the future. Yeah, so you also, you call this uh, future tripping sometimes, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, stop tripping, tripping into yeah. the future. Yeah. Trip more present, more present tripping. We want to come out of having a future that we think we know we want as much as possible. As much as possible, you want to open up the multi-future. It's like... If you've got an idea about what you think, I want to have I want this much money in my bank account when I retire. I want to make sure I have the vacation time and here's my future. It's so limited. When you step out of knowing what you think you want and it, it, this happens, it opens it up to many possibilities. I mean, maybe you'll end up being like on a yacht in France for 4 years. You didn't know that. You couldn't have thought that up. I mean, I just suggested it, but you couldn't have thought that up on your own. But if, you, if you're if you out of a future that you think you know, more possibilities are available. Right, because so much of our desire even is sort of this unconscious regurgitation of what we've been programmed by society or our family or our... Uh, the the path of least resistance, you know, that's so often how yes. humans function. And so what, it, what you know, there's a powerful thing in goal setting for, especially for business mm -hmm. and self-development yeah. goals. Like it is really powerful to set a target and go towards it. And I think there's a place for it. However, why do we set that goal and what makes that goal worth achieving? And once we achieve that goal, will that actually get us to our actual goal? And what is the actual goal? What's the supreme goal? You know, and that's what the Vedas talk about. That's, that's what the Srimad Bhagavatam is all about is what's yeah. the ultimate goal of life and yeah. how do you decide what that is? This is why you want to have a, a really good ethical groundwork for anything you do, like business or anything else, so that you're not so that your goal is balanced with material and spiritual. And and that actually like for business, that's a game changer for people. Why am I even doing this? Why am I doing my life like this? Why am I, why do I have this goal? You know, and if it's a selfish, super, superficial, purely material goal, it's probably not going to have a lot of traction because that's not what the soul is here to do. The soul has a much bigger impact, you know. Um, so add it, add the spiritual. You know, that's the simplest thing to do. Like, just question, you know, what what do I... Okay, so if my goal is retirement, why? What do I want to get out of that? Well, I want rest. I want freedom. I want flexibility. I want more of the... Okay, so that's the real goal. The real goal isn't the bank account that is going to give me the retirement. The real goal is rest. Why not start resting more now? How am I not resting now? You see, so we can actually start having the goals, like pull the goals out of the future into the present and that draws you towards the real future. Yeah, there is this idea of in in almost every spiritual tradition of arriving and striving. And like we we want to get to the goal, we need to get to transcendence, we need to get to enlightenment, we need to get to right. self-realization. Yeah. And part of the secret to that is arriving into it. And if you're only striving, you never arrive. But right. there is this, and that's tension. Yeah. It's also very mm -hmm. similar to electricity, mm -hmm. which is like in order for there to be electricity, there has to be a gap. 
That's how electricity moves. So you have plus and minus. And, and, and creating that connection is what moves the energy through. So there, there's something about time. There's something about the soul and will and desire that is what makes us be. But then the game is that you're kind of already there too. That's the game. That's the consciousness flip from personal to universal consciousness, like from, from small self to big self with a capital S to witness consciousness is I'm already there and I'm playing a, 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 a forgetfulness in this life. So the more I can draw on that bigger reality, that bigger self, the less suffering there is here. I'm just not suffering with my illness, my lack of money, my lack of rest, my whatever. I just am, am witnessing it, and then I can draw upon, I can literally rest anytime I want just by noticing that I'm not, that I'm holding tension and just consciously taking a deep breath or relaxing. How do we balance that with actually making plans, especially like if we have dependents or if we, mm -hmm. you know, there's just some dense reality things that have to be kind of mapped out and and scheduled and figured out that way. So how do you balance the yeah, the 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 two? Well, this is so this is really important. It's again it's attitude. So I can have the the worst most intense schedule and if my attitude is uh future tripping and um uh fear, worry when I'm making a plan, it's going to create more struggle. So let's just say you have to make an airplane uh, ticket plan, okay? And it's what, three months away. So how do you feel about that? Do you feel okay about that? Do you feel, do you not want to go? <laughs> you know, that's a big thing. Like, uh, why are you going? So if it's all good and you're just sort of making a plan and I'm, I want to go, you don't even notice it's happening. You don't notice the planning's happening. You don't notice the future's happening. If you have a problem with something you're planning, there's a problem with the thing you're planning. That's the issue is to decode what, well, what's going on with me? Why am I having such an issue? Well, I don't want to go. You know, it's kind of simple when you come back to what is... What's the issue with the planning? Maybe there's fear. Maybe I have to plan a, a operation and there's a lot of fear around that. That's what's going on. So I have an opportunity to work with, you know, my fear. Right. Yeah. I have to plan the operation. So deal with the energy around it. Totally. And so part of the dealing with the energy around it has to do with not thinking it through and not, uh, Future, intellectualizing being in the mind. it. Yeah. So a big part of the work you do has to do with the body. And yeah. You, and so you've been practicing yoga. You're a yoga master. You've been practicing yoga for over 30 years. You've studied with some masters and you've gotten to a really interesting place with it where it looks maybe different than what you might get if you go to some sort of like hot yoga class on the, <laughs> on the, in downtown, you know, whatever city you're in. Um, how does the body come into this work and how, yeah, like what's going on with, with somatics and archetypal somatics and what is that all about? I like to use the term somatic recapitulation, which comes out of like the Toltec uh, idea of recapitulating our past or whatever's troubling us, whatever's troubling us. Um, and in that tradition, typically it's breath work to reclaim whatever's... So if I'm future tripping, for example, I've projected a part of myself 
like that maybe something bad happened in the past and it's reminding me maybe not even consciously of this thing that's coming in the future that's why my future is upset because something bad happened in the past that means there's a little missing piece of me back there it could just be something so out of my conscious awareness that i'm just sort of like troubled if i'm just thinking about that it's just me thinking about it so the variety of intuitive techniques of just uh, transferring the thinking into embodiment. And that is what the, the work of somatics is. It's using body. There's so many different uh, schools of thought and, and ways of doing this. The way that I'm kind of working with it is having the symbols be a prompt or the archetypal forces be a prompt or having the body be a prompt and then kind of like reaching into it and finding the symbolic. So it goes both ways. But what I, what I have come to realize is that the thinking or the um, data part without being integrated or felt like sensed, experienced in real time, it just, it, it's why it doesn't really work. It's why it's why it's why the 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 talking and the thinking hasn't worked. So even if you don't know how to do it, if you just know that there's body sensations and there's stuff here in body to attend to, it will make the stuff you're thinking about uh, met. So that's the simplest way to kind of get at it is we think too much and i mean this is the path of yoga this is why yogis are doing the hot yoga or whatever kind of yoga they're doing is to try to get embodied and out of the mind that's the whole purpose of yoga get out of atta yoga nushasanam yoga chitta vritti narodaha it's now begins the practice of yoga yoga is the quelling or the harnessing of the mind stuff and stopping that and doing yoga and and being embodied that's what those first two sutras of the yoga sutras are is now begin yoga it's a practice <laughs> yoga stops the mind from being a monkey and makes us present that's what that's the whole pr purpose of yoga is those two things, no matter what the kind of yoga is, whether it's hatha yoga or bhakti yoga or whatever. Right. Gyani yoga, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And as you were talking, it made me realize that the mind is created through the body. Like it's the, it's the neural pathways. It, so it is the body in a way. And, and so it's a, it's a deeper, it's like a deeper body to drop yeah. out of just mm -hmm. sort of the circuitry of the mind kind of looping and mm -hmm. kind of firing and and almost um, stunning us. Mm -hmm. The mind stuns us mm -hmm. in a sense. And the movement of yoga and of even just feeling sensation in the body uh, brings us right into the present unless, like you were saying earlier, out of the future, out of thinking about what's going to happen or happened, and it puts us into the present. So there's something about about the body that is in the now. And then there's also something about movement that helps to do that. Yeah. Anything that, and it's a creative process. It's not like a, it's not like there's these 10 steps and then you're doing something it's, and there's, there's methods. I mean, we have methodology, there's methodology out there of all this kind of stuff, but it's really intuitive how to, that's really what we want. We want the practitioner to take on 
these um, possibilities and explore it and not reinvent the wheel, but uh, innovate on what's possible. So something like Kung Fu or yoga is just a great way in to being embodied and then noticing the separation uh, or compartmentalization of parts of life. So if I'm in a yoga practice and images are coming to me, anybody you talk to will say they're in a yoga practice, something gets triggered in their body and then the past comes flooding in. That's what we can do with recapitulating. We can actually not try to calm that down and make it go away. We could just breathe it in, just let it come through us, let it integrate. And that's using the body the way it's supposed to. It's supposed to bring that stuff up. We're supposed to be bringing the stuff up and recapitulating so we can get to the, you know, purpose, why we're here, what we're here to do. Yeah. I'm kind of curious because you're also the mother of an amazing human being. And I'm wondering what are ways that younger people can begin to do some of this work and how have you kind of brought this to them? Because, yeah, I mean, I've taught, I've taught young people for several years. I know a lot of young people. I know a lot of parents. I know parents who listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, what are some ways that, that they can start uh, empowering the oh, next so generation good. with this stuff? Because oh. it's so valuable. It's so useful. That's so good. Okay, so let's start with little people. So little people have an interesting situation right now with what's going on in the world and what's going on in their families. And the the often what happens with little people especially kids that are in school and have to kind of be in a collective rule thing like we all have to be quiet now this is difficult it's difficult for kids who are rambunctious it's difficult for kids that are body-based to sit in a chair and be quiet um the the cultural response to that is sometimes a drug to deal with that. So it would be, it would be problematic for me to say, take your kids off the drug and take them out of school. (laughs) That's a total perfect solution. That'll work, but that's not a solution that'll work for everybody. So how do I help my child? Well, that means there's a lot of energy that wants to get worked out when I'm not in school and frustration about having to do those kinds of things. So the main thing that kids actually know how to do, because when you see kids, they're, they're having tantrums, they're crying, they're afraid, they don't have issues with their emotional life. Mm. They, it, they're, they're taught throughout life that it has happened. It has been, yeah, stop crying, be quiet, sit down, don't be angry, don't be, which doesn't work. I'm going to just say it like a real, you know, opinion. It has not worked to, because we have a world of people who are angry, (laughs) depressed, afraid, um, don't know what they want to do with their lives, all that kind of stuff. So the, the first thing a parent could do right now, who's listening to this is start trusting their child's uh, state, whatever it is, whatever they're bringing, if they're upset. So help them to express their emotions, first thing. Could you give a couple examples of what helping them to express their emotions might look like? Yeah, so say I come home from school and I'm tired and I'm angry and mom is tired and angry because she's 
been working all day too, and they're both frustrated. It's this perfect opportunity for everybody to kind of like, ah, and get their, you know, energy going, punch pillows, um, do something active that actually expresses the anger. Now, that's not a popular opinion. We are taught that anger isn't okay and we shouldn't be having it. In my experience, that tends to somatize, you know, bodies get, you know, if your kid has, if your kid has uh, fatigue, allergies, um, uh, pain, growing pains, uh, stuff like that, and you start expressing the rage that is hidden and has been uh, you know, squelched, you might find that some of those symptoms start to kind of dissipate. I've seen it happen. <laughs> so, so that's number one. If it's fear, huh, express the fear, you know, whatever it is. And that's really basic stuff to stop telling our children to stop having their, their, or, or to, I'm tired, get up. You know, I, I know we can't do this in the constraints of school. You know, there's a certain time you got to get up, you got to go to school. But, uh, the truth is that they're tired and need more time to sleep. So we need to get them resting more, not just in front of the TV, not just with devices, but more rest. So, you know, start attending to it, read the dream. Read the waking dream. What's happening in the waking dream? My kid is, is symptomatic and tired. You know, it, it also it sounds like there's a component of your kid is also one of the symbols in your waking dream, and there's there's something to decode there, whatever whatever the problem is that you want to try and... Ha sorry, I'm not telling you parents yeah. listening what <laughs> to do, but if I had a kid, it'd be like, my kid has some issue that I'm trying to fix, but really it's my, some, something for me to attend to. Absolutely. If you think, it, Carl Jung said this, if you think your kid has a problem, look at yourself. He said basically that. And, and the truth is that it's often, you know, if somebody says they want to bring their child to me, I, I steer people towards doing the work with me themselves because child, children and dogs or pets are actually kind of expressing the energy in the room. And it's the parent that really we wanna, you know, get more um, aligned with reality. Powerful, so is there any, it, I, I kind of asked you to go deeper into how to help them express their emotions. Was there mm -hmm. another part after that that you wanted to share? Well, I guess the other part of this is com it's complex. It's hard in like a, a little two minute. So the truth is, you know, get a coach. Get a coach. I, I have coaches on my website. I work with people, but but if there's something going on in, and I know that the finances are often an issue. So um, listen to my episode on money, chi, and trust, <laughs> and get you know get the money thing um, shifted. Not to necessarily see me or something, but just to kind of feel like whatever whatever the issue is, um, it's not a problem out there. It's a problem of getting aligned it, with it on the inside. And so use your intuition. So that I think that's what I'll say next about this is that if you're not going to work with a coach, if you feel a little like a lot of struggle with your child, if your child is struggling a lot, um, trust first what you even think might be happening or what you feel might be happening. Because uh, that little voice that, that's in there going, you know, maybe this situation that my child is in, or maybe just that day that whatever was going on with my kid, um, or maybe what was going on with me when my child had that tantrum, maybe I was tantruming on the inside 
and they were the one expressing it. So, you know, just use your intuition. Yeah. Sounds like a a good roadmap for, for people to follow. And so I'm kind of curious who have been some of your greatest mentors and inspirations in your life that have led you to where you are now with all these awesome codes and keys for navigating this reality and decoding this reality? Uh, Bill Murray. Um, <laughs> Why Bill Murray? <laughs> he just comes up again and again and again. Um, I'll just add too quickly, Eric Schiffman, a, a master yoga teacher who um, is one of my greatest. I have noticed that a lot of my inspirations are men also. I'll just put that out there that I know that this is maybe a piece, a little piece of shadow. I don't think it's a problem. I just have noticed it. So if you noticed it, um, you get $10. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Bill Murray, why Bill Murray? He's a trickster. He's a fool. He lives a fool's life in a really good way. I mean, one of the newest things that I saw him do during the uh, chaos with Me Too and cancel culture and all that kind of stuff was he was called out on something and the way he handled it was so awesome. There was no denial. There was no skirting the issue. He, He basically just said, I've been unconscious and I'm learning and it's kind of cool that I'm learning. I mean, he even took it to the level of like, how cool is this for me? I get to learn. So, I mean, he's just a master of, he's the, he's a master of reality. Another great story is, and there's video of this one. Um, he was walking down the street in one of the towns he hangs out in and he heard a party going on. So he walked in and joined the party and I think he played the piano and it was somebody's birthday and he sang the birthday and he just made somebody's party the best party ever. I mean, he's a, he's a chi flow master too. So I think that that's kind of one of my, one of my things that I think is much like, I don't care what your background is. Why are they both actors? That's another interesting thing. Well, um, what, what I'm getting from it. They're men I'm, and actors. And well, I'm fools. curious your thoughts on this. I'm curious. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because they're stars, mm-hmm. they are symbols for society. Yeah. They, they, they're archetypes. Yeah. But they're also just humans. But it's like because he's aware of the potency of his presence in someone's life yeah there's no difference of bill murray walking into that party than anyone else Mm -hmm. except for the fact that he is a well he gets away with it because he gets away with it but he also gets given a lot of attention and prestige and Mm -hmm. like um it impacts people and so he uses that yeah to help people live in a more profound way almost like he creates magic for people by showing up yeah and you can do that as an as not a star but yes. he, ha- he he's using his ability in that way to help people kind of shift into the present and have a magical moment right now absolutely i think that that's just a great way to put it he and that's a big part of the work that i share is finding our our own star and so that's probably another reason why they stick out but he for sure knows exactly what he's doing and why it's impactful and does it um and (laughs) does it really really well he explained i mean a, a person that wasn't 
well-known, might not have been able to make it into that party, but might have. There's a million Bill Murrays out there that aren't, that we don't know about that aren't famous and they are living lives like this. Those are just two that I happen to kind of him and Woody know that are doing these things. And you talked about Eric Schiffman, who's mm-hmm. your yoga teacher. He's like that too. Would you, would you actually briefly, how did you first discover yoga and how did you get into yoga? Because yoga has been a big part of your life. That's funny. He actually had me tell that story too in one of the uh, trainings I was in with him, just because I was so young and I think it was interesting to him. I got into yoga when I was really little. I was probably eight or seven, and there was a guy named Richard Hittleman who had a PBS. He had like a lattice and some like funky like plants, and two, I think there were always one or two women in leotards with him. And he, it was a PBS, and I would do, I would, it would be like Saturday morning, and I would go out and I would do yoga with, with Hittleman. Um, I think that's his name, Richard Hittleman. And then when I was in high school, it was very uncool. Um, I was already kind of struggling with the Southern California vibe and wanting a more hippie, like, you know, woodsy life. And uh, I found yoga and it was like me and a bunch of seniors at the senior center. There weren't any yoga studios. There weren't any sticky yoga mats or yoga studios. There were just like, you know, parks and recreation, putting on yoga classes. And then I did that, and then I, I think when I was 17, I, I told my mom's friend who was a yoga teacher that I wanted to be a yoga teacher, and she said no. <laughs> she said, go have a life. You can't be a yoga teacher at 17 years old. So I went and had a life, and then at about 28, my yoga teacher um, told me this was not wasn't Eric this is another teacher said she wanted me to teach for her she wanted me to start teaching her classes so I became a yoga teacher before I had yoga teacher training and I started teaching and then I went and got training and that's when I met Eric I um, started going back to Southern California to get training what is it that makes that style of yoga kind of unique or different from maybe what some other people may have experienced? You mean Eric's style? Um, well, he kind of, it's weird. We, we simultaneously, he had kind of a free form vibe, um, very intuitive yoga. And so I just matched with me. And so I started there and then we kind of, I had a child and I didn't see him, but I started noticing that he started calling his style freedom style yoga. And I adopted that. I said, yeah, this is freedom style yoga, what I'm teaching. And now I think he calls it freedom yoga. So it just sort of like parallels, you know, it's a natural, when you start listening inwardly for guidance for your yoga practice, it's a natural progression. This is how yoga was invented, Hatha yoga. It was yogis sitting there and channeling stuff and feeling. So I think that that's a natural progression as a yogi. Like the more yoga you do, the, the less you're looking for an external uh, teaching and the more you're drawing it, which is that collective, that soma, that you know thing that is running through all of reality. I struggle with that balance sometimes being a practitioner of bhakti yoga, you know, which has a strong yes. lineage and a strong codified 
practice and way of behaving and being. And yet a lot of those codes and ways of being were channeled through divine revelation. And so it's sort of like, how can you accept some divine revelation, but never accept any of your own in the practice? And I, I struggle with balancing that in my own practice. Well, I think the, the, the mind maybe is where we can come at it with that one is that your mind thinks the, the, uh, what is it? Parampara is, is going to only be coming through words or lineage or the, the last person in that line to give you that information. Why couldn't Parampara or that lineage or that data come through your Soma? Why couldn't it come through that? Why isn't it the same? You know, body having that data is part of that. Like, are you saying there there is lineage in the body, just like we're fruit, we have genetic kind of, like we're, we are of our ancestors? Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, I'm saying that there's no, there, and and possibly the, fil the filter's better because the data that- It's even interesting that they call it data. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the the data we get from another person is going to have them attached to it. And not that that's a problem, but we do have a, a, a system of discernment that is better than the mind system or any ethical system that we're adopting from the outside. This is why discernment is so important when you're doing any kind of practice or following anything is that you also retain does this fit with my values? Does this fit with my inner discernment mechanism? Yeah, it's that's really profound. And it's sort of like at the end of our life, we really are, I don't want to say like on our own, but there is this element of we can't take anything or anyone with us. And what we really believe is really what will show up. And so whatever feels foreign that we had been hiding from ourselves, feeling foreign is not going to make it. It's really going to be what we know. I mean, I'm, I, from what mm -hmm. I've heard and, yeah. and, and gathered from people, it's, it's really about what we truly believe, what we truly know mm -hmm. in our own body. Body knowing. Body knowing at the end of, mm -hmm. of our time here in this manifestation. And yeah. so, yeah, th th there's this need to get our own back really fully and and to know and to know for ourselves what we know and not know what we don't know but to um sort of yeah like to confront the reality that we have inside of ourselves as true you know we want to strengthen that mechanism we want to strengthen that muscle of testing reality against the inner right we want that to be the ultimate and and not to say throwing out like I love to to um, notice how these ethical frameworks from all these cross-cultural traditions they work they fit in and if there's something like um, you know uh, polygamy or something it's not cross-cultural right. it's probably not true you can throw it out. Misogyny. You don't need, yeah. You, these things, you do not need them. But thou shalt not kill, that's pretty good. <laughs> okay, so this is sort of the idea of universal truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, about that because um, that's an important one. I, I would say the first 
memory I have of hearing somebody else talk about that was Satchitananda, who is a great translator of the Yoga Sutras. He said, if it's true, it's going to be universally true. So you can pretty much go. Uh, so one thing that I like to talk about is like the use of resources. If you go to say a Native American culture or Aboriginal culture from Australia, you're going to see this truth that you do not use more than is sustainable for this earth place that you're in, the place that you're in. If you're using up resources that cannot be replenished, you're out of natural law. You're out of bounds. You're committing a crime. So that's, it's easy. It's easy. Okay. I don't want to be involved in a company that's making uh, a polluting agent or that is um, extracting more than yeah. is replenished naturally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, of course, we could all say, well, we're using technology that's probably going to be landfill someday. So the the point of knowing these ethics isn't to just kind of um, become the zero waste Buddha we actually want to be of the world and deal with our karma, but we want to do the best we can. So instead of buying, you know, 45 plastic items, I'm going to whittle down my use to one. You know, we just do better. You do better. So ethics, ethical guidelines are great. You do better. <laughs> well, and it seems like one of the universal, real, real universal truths is consciousness, that's one of the things we can know the most truly is that I am I am existing right now, mm -hmm. and then I kind of can infer that you're also existing, and the the ducks that are quacking outside or like geese that. or whatever they're existing, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so that's like one of the first kind of things we're confronted with as conscious beings is that consciousness is there. Yeah, and and we don't want to get bogged down in the rules that are you know, um, it should be simple. Truth is also, here's another universal truth. Truth is simple. Lies are complex. Mm. That comes out of Mula, actually. That's a nakshatra. That's one of the truths of Mula is, is truth is simple. Lies are complex. So you can find, you can figure out if something, if somebody's giving you a big song and dance about why something is, and it's like, really complicated and now we got to put on our Nikes and drink the Kool-Aid and shove off to Haley Bop, you know, like die. And, you know, some big kind of culty, like the specific thing to your cult that's really like complicated. It's not true. Something <laughs> categorically about the simplicity, like uh, even the word sutra yeah. and san in yes. Sanskrit in general is there's simple things and their simplicity allow it to contain a multitude of everything. And so, you know, for instance, God is love and love is God. I also say if it's true, if it's true, it's going to be loving. So if it's unloving, it's probably not true. That doesn't mean it won't be fierce and intense. Something can be <laughs> fierce and it can still be loving. Yeah, right. And I read you that poem from Rumi about the the winemaker. Yes, and uh, it's a it's a great example of fierce, painful love. Yes, yeah, yeah. And if it's just critical, I think that that's a really so love love. Uh, if it's true, it's loving. So that's a that's one I use a lot with the critical inner voice or the critical what I call the under voice, that inner that voice that's like you're such an idiot. Not true. 
simply not true. It's just not true. It's a lie. But the undervoice uses is like really good about lies, tends to use lies mostly. Yeah. And that's, um, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz says, don't, uh, Impeccability with the word is the first of the four agreements in his book, The Four Agreements. Being impeccable with the word means not using the word mm -hmm. against ourselves, yes. not casting spells against ourselves, not calling myself an idiot, which is such a reductionist kind of view. Like maybe, I, maybe I'm making some mistakes, you know, maybe mm -hmm. I'm not behaving mm -hmm. in yeah. my highest potential. But but that's like loving feedback at that point. It's not it's not the same as like attacking my character. So then, that, what's the next step? If I'm if there's something unloving coming here, then I've started witness consciousness because I've noticed it. And then what's then? Okay, so if that's not true, I want to kind of understand this critic and what the critic is about and where to go now. So th this this came up in a therapy session that I was receiving. I, I was talking to my therapist and she was asking me a question and I was really, she was trying to get me to access my own intuitive higher self. And I was really struggling with answering anything. Mm. I felt lost in the confusion and I noticed and I was like getting more and more anxious and stressed out like I can't where you know where's the answer where's the truth here. And then she was like let me demonstrate. And then what she demonstrated was first self-compassion. Mm. And that was yeah. really uh, exactly. enlightening for me mm -hmm. because what I was doing was beating up on myself for not knowing an answer. Yes. And what she was doing is first like empathizing, being like, I get it. This is hard. This is a hard decision. It makes sense that mm -hmm. you'd feel that way. And I got you. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that has become this mantra now yes. for me is like, there's, there's something really beneficial about curiosity. Mm -hmm. And there's something really beneficial about defaulting to self-compassion yeah. as a doorway to then go do whatever work has to be done. Absolutely. That's the, that, that's the big move. That's the big move. And what I call part of the maturing process is it's like self care, self love, knowing, knowing about rest, um, catching that critical voice, all of that stuff so that you can actually be kind to yourself. And then you beat up that inner voice, right? And you, and you, sh and you tell it to go away. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do we do with the inner voice? Yeah. The critical under So you smash it down, you bury it. No, you, um, when you witness the critical voice, you start by listening because guess what? In shadow, in that criticism, there's going to be some gold. There's going to be some data. It, it might sound like you're an idiot, but then I'm going to go, oh, there's a part of me that feels dumb. That's pain. There's a part of me that's in pain. So I can quickly move off from judging the judge to containing and having some care of that I must be feeling bad. Something's going on that's uncomfortable here. You know, I get I get to get into that thing like you had in therapy, which is compassion first. Yeah. And listening is curiosity. It's openness. It's so listen people don't know that I think people are taught to kind of put the critical voice away. But my thing with shadow and everything is to meet it. You turn towards the monster. You you take your torch and you broaden the view so you can see more of it. And and it's like, ah, but 
That's where you and get the data. This that, is what I've been avoiding. Yeah, and so this is this is where maybe um, your one of your introductory or like level two courses is Slay Your Dragons, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you spell Slay S L E I G H like yeah. just ride, like ride a sleigh, ride the dragon. Yeah, yeah. This is what we get into, and this is uh, a big part of somatic recapitulation is being compassionate towards my past, my personal self. You know, the parts of me that are tripping, even the critic, getting getting compassion for that. And you have a lot of other courses. You have f a free introduction to shadow stalking. You have shadow stalking 101. Mm -hmm. And then you have slay your dragons. Yeah. And then help me out. What comes next? Guardians of Manifestation and Truth, which is, um, they're almost like, they don't necessarily have to go in the order they go in, but usually slay your dragons, we do that. And then we go in deeper. That's kind guardians. of for people who want to become coaches uh, using the archetypal somatics it, framework. Or people that are working with me one-on-one -on -one in an intensive way. Like the, those courses, I've been doing them as groups. And so I haven't run another group of those two in succession, but that's hopefully coming up soon. And then, yeah. But, but Shadow Stalking 101 yeah. is really a really powerful arsenal of tools for doing this kind of work and maybe it's split up into these three phases and um you know in the beginning i talked about the yeah about that a little bit can you walk us through this framework of the overworld the underworld and the world in between and 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 why that is a yes. thing and yeah, yeah like what's that all about well the overworld we've talked a lot about the waking dream this is us being in conscious awareness um the underworld, we could say, is kind of like shadow and maybe the criticism or turning towards the monsters, turning towards the, the pain, uh, starting to really listen to what's being coming up from our unconscious. Like, why am I with this kind of a partner over and over again? I keep breaking up with these people and I'm back with another one. You know, this is kind of like underworld stuff. And then there's, there's tools and practices and journeys in that course where I can learn to go into that underworld material and work with it. And that is a, a really important skill to work with shadow, to just start um, integrating what had been, like I, most of us don't know even how to own shadow, how to even start working with it. So that's why I created the course was so that, like you said, it was just tools right there. It's it's something you do on your own, or we could work one-on-one -on -one together through the course, and I do that with some people. Um, but you can just get it. You know, you can just go and uh, it's at Thinkific. It's a um, self-paced course. We'll put it in the show it's notes all audio or something too, like that. Which is really yeah. nice. Yeah, it's all audio, and there's homework to do in there. Anyway, there's a lot there, but that underworld part of it is really important. So here's, but here's the bonus. The in the worlds in between. So some of us have heard of liminal space, or maybe the um, it's like the line between the threshold. Maybe you've heard of you know the hero's journey. The hero starts in the overworld, goes through the threshold, goes into the underworld, and then comes back out. Well, what I feel like has been missing from a lot of these traditions is a real deep understanding and awareness of the liminal space. And I think that that's what a lot of like psychedelic therapies are, are trying to kind of like develop um, an awareness of. And the work I do is sober. It's not using any kind of substance or deep trance. But what we do is what we're doing is we're expanding our ability to get the liminal, to get the downloads, to get um, to be, God, it's almost like 
parallel universes whenever we want, um, uh, psychic information when we want, you know, sprouting the wings, the, the fool sprouts the wings or finds the raven. Uh, it's the ability to be in the right place at the right time for it's, those. So it's Neo when he can jump across the the gap where he's yeah, not he's in the like... matrix and he's not in the real world. He's harnessing sort of the power of both. Exactly. He is aware of both of those realities um, and he's able to manipulate them at will. And that's what we want in, in the overworld, in our consciousness. We want, you know, Maha Maya or the illusion. We want to be able to take those veils down and see yoga maya which is the the magic that is created by the source of everything so it's not just like we're healing and we're you know where our, our lives are bad i i know i sound like i'm mocking it a little bit but the point is not just to be a person coping with our pain we are not here to just cope with our problems and our pain so that we can retire. That's not the purpose. You are a magician. You are a sorcerer. You are a sorceress. You are a person that has access to magic and boons, which you get from doing this work. You get the ability to, you know, I talk to animals and I divine, you know, water for people. And I do things with my magical powers. I have, you know, uh, you know, we're here to play. This is a, this is a Leela. This is a, a place to play. And we're here to do that. So there's so much more available than just um, dealing with my shadow. There's, there's, there's more. Is there an element of a, of like this divine role? Like you said, we're here to play and, you know, to be in a play, there's usually some sort of cast. There's some sort of divine like part in the greater play. That's, you know, something that comes out a little bit in Slayer Dragons, actually, because we work with personal archetypes in that work, and we start to decode. You can do that right now. You can think about the way archetypes are working in your world. People might be calling you something, like uh, Kaylee recently told me about something that people call him that he's sort of owning a little bit more. What do they call you? Yeah, over the over like the last eight years, over and over and over again, people have called me the wizard or a wizard, and it kind of started to stack up and become really like apparent. The more people, like new clients, calling me the wizard, and you're just like, come on, it's so interesting that that many people are having that perception. That's your archetypal force being seen. So that's like a personal archetype that you have. That's clearly something that you're working with and points to you your purpose. You are the wizard in, in your role with people. So that's why, yeah, we get, to, we get to actually decode what we're doing here. Not necessarily, I don't, I don't get too bogged down in the meaning of life. I'm much more interested in being drawn forward on the path of life. And it's a puzzle, it's a game, it's a, it's a labyrinth. We're, we're playing and we're uh, choose your own adventure. Yeah, so there's a lot of will still in it there's a lot of personal freedom yeah and and i guess i just to add the like the coach training i find a lot of people that find me do have kind of like uh they often have a thing like well they want to kind of coach too they they kind of get and so i do have like a training that i do with people um that that leaks in sometimes with people even if they're not going to be an archetypal somatics coach 
pretty much everybody that I work with tends to start being able to use this work in their lives with other people. You know, that's kind of the big purpose is like, if I'm a doctor, I can use these skills, you know, with my patients or I can use them with my clients or whatever. Even if we're not going to be a coach, we end up being able to use these tools. Uh, so I'm curious, how would someone know it's time to do this work with you or one of your coaches, you know, like what, what, what indicators are, are there for them that are like, Oh, this it's time to get some work done with a somatic shot of work coach. If there's places where you're stuck and what you've done before isn't working, that's a really good one. Um, you, you just have intuitive, you're drawn to it. And it's not just psychological. It sounds like even physical stuff. Yeah, and I would I would really stalk or um, decode the part of you that immediately shuts down why you shouldn't do things. Like, I want to take a trip somewhere, but I can't because I don't have the money. So that's a that's a that's the will being shut down by shadow. So before you go there, and why it isn't going to work, you know, you always want to kind of like stick with the desire and your will that's kind of pointing you somewhere. So if your intuition is like, I'm ready to do this work, you know, you don't have to work with a coach one-on-one. -on -one. You can get my course and learn a lot of this stuff. You can also just take what we've talked about today and start applying it in your life. And I think that's one of the main things is if you're drawn you know, people find me in all kinds of ways through my podcast. Maybe I'll, somebody will find me through this interview, um, referral. It, you know, it's magic. It kind of comes when it's supposed to come. And you can trust that if you're drawn to do this kind of work, you're ready. Yeah. Also, if you're like 50 and you're falling apart, <laughs> it's a good sign. Perfect timing. <laughs> Perfect time to get yeah. some, some work done. <laughs> yeah, because I, I really do feel like the latter half of life is where things get really kind of intense in different categories. You know, like maybe there's a, a sense of like, I didn't do what I thought I wanted to do. And this is an opportunity to, to really get the next, you know, you've done all the research, now it's time to dig in. So what advice or counsel would you give me? I'm 32. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have maybe like another 18 years before mm -hmm. I hit that 50 mark? Well, amazingly, the people that I have that are young, that I work with, I see, I'm, I'm constantly thinking, man, if I was their age and I was doing this kind of work, there would have been so much more available to me. It's, al it's not like I'm jealous, but it's almost like that. It's so great to be able to, you know, have these tools now. So you are doing it. I mean... You, you're, but what advice do I give a 32-year-old? What advice do you give me? What should I, Kaylee, focus on over the next 18 years? Keep making messes and mistakes and not try to do things right. That you have a lot of uh, love and containment for anything that's supposedly wrong um, so that you're actually not, not falling into the trap of being an image, but you're being an experience. Um, being into uh, trying things and not having to do it well or perfect um, so that you are, yeah, like really building the skills of experience and um, and just stalking, more stalking when you feel like, if you feel like there's anything that is starting to really densify and be a trap 
stock it so that you can get the medicine. The trap is good. Trap is not a problem. Enjoy the trap. Enjoy the trap. Yeah. It's not a problem. It's actually full of data. So as we kind of wind down, I could talk to you forever. In fact, yeah, I do. I we talk will to you a be lot. talking for the next rest of the day. Would you take us out with a story about a banana? Well, this is a great metaphor that came to me when talking to somebody. Is that the one we're talking about? Okay. So in life, we might think we're kind of faltering or don't have what it takes, you know, maybe to do our life. Maybe the challenges are very intense. And we might be bogged down in trying to do what we think we're supposed to do or do it the way we think we're supposed to do it. And the, the gift of shadow integration or this kind of work is that we actually do have what it takes to attend to whatever's here. And for example, you might find yourself in a very uh, challenging situation right now, like you don't have the, the, the bank account to support what's going on, or you don't have the people. And the metaphor is that I'm standing here in an underworld experience with a banana, and I know I'm going to be seeing dark monsters, dragons, whatever. And I have a freaking banana. <laughs> what I, you know, I might be saying to myself, I don't have what I need. I need a sword. I need a flamethrower. I'm going to be in trouble here. I'm not going to make it through this trial because I don't have what I need. Okay. I have an opportunity right now to trust this banana and lo and behold, I round the corner, and who do I meet? A giant, fire-breathing, banana-eating dragon. I have exactly what I need for this situation. And all it took was me trusting that I had the right thing at the right time for this trial. Love you. Love you. Thank too. you so much for <laughs> blessing my podcast. And everyone, please go check out the Synchrosoma podcast. It's on all platforms. Check out Melissa's work at Synchrosoma on Instagram. And thank you for tuning into another episode of Amplify What You Love. I'm Kaylee Marks. This is Melissa Meter. Thanks for coming. Bye. 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 <laughs>